Good morning, Redemption. Um, it's a little bit of a chaotic week. Like, the least amount of chaos was that the CDC changed course on us on Friday, um, which I, I take as good news. So let's, let's talk about masks real quick. I don't have an announcement today, um, but just to say, basically what we've done since the beginning of the pandemic is uh, take the CDC seriously. Um, they have, until Friday, continued to encourage us to wear masks in church services, which is why still today uh, we are wearing masks in a church service. Um, their guidance changed Friday, so what we're going to do is we're going to have some conversations this week. I have no announcement for you today about exactly what we're going to change or how we're going to change. Um, our, our basic conviction has always been follow the CDC, and if me putting a little bit of cloth over my face um, keeps anyone actually safer or even helps them feel um, emotionally and physically safer to be here among us, it's absolutely worth it um, for me to wear this. It's just not that big of a deal. I will happily do it. So we will revisit and we will uh, let you know uh, when and if things change. Um, but since the CDC had changed that guidance, um, so suddenly there's no announcement today. And since it was so public, I wanted to make sure that um, y'all all kind of understood where we were. Um, let, let's talk about uh, the rest of the news, right? So um, I don't know about you, but for the past, what, four days now, five days, um, I have been like glued to uh, either my TV or Twitter or both. Um, just constantly um, trying to figure out what's going on in the world, trying to... Uh, uh, figure out, um, I, I guess, are we headed towards nuclear war? Uh, what, what, like, um, how much do I personally need to be worried about this sort of thing? Um, yeah, I, some of that has subsided, at least in, in my own um, personal heart and mind and soul. Um, but I find myself still just uh, lamenting and praying for and worried about um, mostly the people of Ukraine, although also the people of Russia um, with the violence, with the invasion, with the war that has been started for uh, just crazy reasons. Now, I bring this up because, because I, I, I think this is a um, fantastic segue uh, to talk about prayer, right? One, one of my things when, when I'm thinking about giant world events like this is, God, where are you? Maybe more specifically, God, I have prayed about this. Did you not listen to me? And, and it seems a little like um, self-aggrandizing perhaps, Think, well, I prayed about this. God, why did you let this happen? Um, and yet, isn't that exactly the question that all of us ask in like our day-to-day -day lives? People have been asking me this morning, you know, how's, how's your week? Um, and I ask them, how was your week? And, you know, we just kind of do, do the thing that we do to try to care about each other and try to really open up. And, and my, my thing is, I, I never want to lie to people. Sometimes there are hard things that I don't want to talk about in this moment, but, but I want to be a person who deeply connects. If you ask me how I'm doing, I'm going to probably tell you more than you want to know. Um, but really, my, my answer this morning when people ask, how was the week? I'm like, well, besides the chaos in the world, like really, my personal life was... Uh, slightly better this week than it has been for um, especially the last year. But, but um, I, I guess here, here's what I'm saying. Um, for all of our prayers that we wonder if they work in the broader world, I think the question that all of us has about prayer when it comes to suffering in our regular day-to-day -day lives, which I'm well acquainted with and so many of you are well acquainted with, is do our prayers work? Do they make any difference? 
Jesus seems to say that they work. Jesus seems to indicate that they make some difference. We all, just as humans, are wired to pray in times of chaos and fear and suffering and need, even if we think that we're not those kinds of people. So many times we find ourselves praying, and so the question is less, do we pray, but do our prayers work? Do they, do they make any difference? Or, or maybe to put it a slightly different way, like when the things went bad, when I continued hurting and suffering and longing and wondering, then the, the question for many of us is, wait, why didn't my prayers work? I've seen them work for other people. I've heard stories about them working for other people. God seems to take care of that person over there way better than he does me here. Why don't my prayers work? Um, if you've been here at Redemption for the past year, uh, I don't know, I share some about this. I share a lot about this off the stage. I share some about it from the stage. Um, but I, uh, let, let, me, let me sum it up this way. My wife and I have been married almost 17 years. Um, out of our 17 years of marriage, this was, uh, I don't know, the one with, uh, one of the two with perhaps the most um, consistent and devastating, just like disappointment, alienation, pain, suffering, hurt, weeping, grief, all of those things. Things could get worse. <laughs> uh, but for us, historically, they haven't been much worse. And I, as a human, find myself praying about these sorts of things. Nevertheless, as I've prayed about um, a number of very important things in my extended family, in our personal life, um, as we've gone through real hurt and real pain, and I've asked God for things that haven't come to pass. One of my major questions is, God, why didn't you listen to me? Um, I don't know about you. I don't, I don't know what you're praying for this week. I don't know if you're praying about um, Ukraine and Russia. I don't know if you have friends there. Like, I, I, I know some of us do. Um, I don't know if it's miscarriages. I don't know if it's deaths. I don't know if it's alienation from parents. I don't know if it's struggles at work, if it's financial difficulties. If, like, I, I, I don't know exactly what's going on for you, but, but I'd wager that if you look to your left and look to your right, the vast majority of us in here this week, unless we're just papering it over with, no, everything's okay, everything's okay, everything's okay, everything's okay, everything's okay, this like false yes. Yeah, everything's okay. How was your week? Yeah, everything's okay. It, when we're not papering it over with a false yes, so much of the time, not, not every single week, and certainly not for all of us every single week, but for so many of us, so many weeks, how is the week? I, I don't know. I've been praying for things, and I'm not sure God is there. I'm not sure if he's listening. I think I'm supposed to pray, but what the heck does it do? I don't have any idea. Okay, now, um, what we've been doing for the past uh, 11,000 weeks is we have been walking through the Gospel of Mark together um, uh, way too little bit at a time. But what we're doing between now and Easter is we are wrapping up the Gospel of Mark together, um, seeing the crucifixion of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, and so forth. So last week we had this picture of Jesus at the Last Supper. He had invited his friends into this moment of spiritual intimacy. He had prayed these Hallel Psalms, 113 through 118, together with his people and had um, kind of raged against the darkness that was looming over them in this faithful, hopeful, desperate, needy, real way that we walked through last week. This week um, we are continuing the Last Supper has just ended, and we pick it up in Mark chapter 
14, verse 26. Now, I happen to be reading this morning from the New American Standard Bible. Uh, There's multiple versions of it. I happen to have the 95 version on my computer, so it's what I'm reading. I don't think the 95 version is better than the newer one. I just don't have the newer one. There are lots of good translations out there, uh, but they're all like less than perfect. They're all interpretations. They are what they are. So we change the, the version that we read from on a regular basis just to kind of keep you guys on your toes. No, it's, it's not to confuse you, and it's not to convince you that you can't trust the Bible. It's just to routinely make the point that translations um, have power structures, they have power plays, they have opinions, they have interpretations, and we at the very least need to be aware of this fact. Mark chapter 14, picking up in verse 26. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because it's written, I will strike down the shepherd. Okay, so um, Jesus is uh, just leaving the Last Supper. They've had this um, like spiritual, intimate, uh, high point moment where he's opened up his spiritual life. He's cracked it open and invited them in. They've praised God. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. God, this is the day that you have made. Let's rejoice and be glad in it. And they have marched out to the, um, to, to the um, Mount of Olives and Jesus immediately looks at his closest friends and says, oh yeah, by the way, all of you guys are about to stumble. Like all of you guys are going to fall away. And then he quotes um, from Zechariah uh, this verse of, I will strike down the shepherd, which apparently is God is going to strike down the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered or shall um, fall away. Verse 28, but after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. So Jesus is inviting his friends. He's saying, hey, there's this Old Testament prophecy um, that's several centuries old. By the way, it's about me. God is going to kill me in a way. And as the shepherd is taken away, you sheep are going to be scattered. And yet, I'm going to be raised. So Jesus is is telling them. He knows what's going to happen. He knows he's about to die. He knows he will then be resurrected. And then he gives them a pastoral, patient, kind, encouraging word. He says, and then I'm going to go ahead of you to Galilee. This is the place where Jesus started his career. This is the place where Jesus originally became the good shepherd who was searching for the lost sheep of Israel and gathered these disciples. He said, hey, we are going to go back to the beginning. Even though you stumble, even though you fail, even though you deny me, even though you run off in your own terror and cowardice, even though like you abandon me, I'm not giving up on you. Even though I die, I'm not going to stay dead. I'm going to be resurrected. And even after that, I am then not turning on you in wrath. Instead, I'm going to continue being the patient, good shepherd, and I'm going to seek you out as my lost sheep in the region of Galilee, just like I did originally. Let's meet up again. So there's something very kind and a little uh, sweet and pretty positive about this, even though there's something very real. But Peter isn't taking it. Verse 29, Peter says to Jesus, even though all may fall away, yet I will not. So, so Jesus has just said, all of you are going to fall away. And Peter's like, come on, 
all, maybe, maybe all doesn't always mean all. If you look at the Greek, you know, he, like, he gives a, a lesson here of all doesn't mean all. No, um, Peter's like, I, I don't care. You said all, but not me. Interesting thing is, we're going to find out here in just a minute, that apparently all of the rest of them were thinking ex- exactly what uh, Peter articulates here. But Peter says to Jesus, I don't care. Everyone else can leave you, but I'm not going to leave you. Um, now, I, I love Peter here. So what we're going to do is we're going to have like a, a foil. We're going to have Jesus, whom we imitate, follow, get filled with, are empowered by, are in- inspired, yes, inspired by, yes, but more than that, we are mystically and holistically and really empowered by the living Jesus who becomes one spirit with us, to use later New Testament language. But while we have this model and power of Jesus, we have Peter, who's kind of the opposite of that. And so we look here in the story, and there are some of us who need to say, Oh yeah, I'm a whole lot like Peter. Like when people ask me, would you die for Jesus? I'm like, yes, I would die for Jesus. Maybe that's just like goofy coffee table chatter that doesn't happen at your house. It seemed to happen at mine a lot when I was growing up. I have no idea why. Um, Anyway, uh, Columbine and all that sort of thing. Ah, man, this is a dark week. Um, and like, I don't mean that to say that funnily, but, but, but I think we find ourselves having, having these questions and these assertions in ourselves. Some of us, a whole lot like Peter, that's me, I'm never gonna leave Jesus. Um, can I just say, if that's not where you are this morning, um, actually, congratulations. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm not inviting you to leave Jesus, but I think Peter's problem here that we're gonna see is that he, his eyes are bigger than his stomach. He thinks he's stronger than he is, and he doesn't know himself very well at all. He's, he's come to know a whole lot about Jesus. He's gone in several chapters from misunderstanding who Jesus was. Jesus originally said, hey, I'm going to die, and Peter stood up and got in Jesus' face and said, no, Lord, you will never die. Don't say these kinds of things, and Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. Here we have the same sort of dynamic going on, Jesus foretelling the near future, Peter saying, no, Lord, except this time it's not, no, you won't die, Lord, because Peter has come to understand that for Jesus to be the Messiah, he has to die. Peter has corrected his view of who the Christ is, but Peter still has yet to correct his view of who he is. He's yet to correct his view of his own need, of his own weakness, of his own desperation for Jesus to do something in him and for him that Peter himself cannot do. He says, I'm going to be with you. If you die, I will die. If, if you go there, I will go there. I am not abandoning you. And Peter deeply misunderstands his own place in the world. So if, if we're starting out here and we're like, um, hey, some of us understand wanting to get in Jesus' face and say, I'd never leave you, Jesus. And then some of us are like, I'm not so sure. I think it's probably better for us to say, I'm not so sure. I think there's probably a third category of a nevertheless, right? So, so, so I think there's the, the yes crowd, the no crowd, and the nevertheless crowd. My, my aim in all of this is for us to become the nevertheless crowd. So, so this works out in several ways. One is, how was your week? Yeah, everything's fine. I don't want us to be the yeah, everything's fine. I don't want to be the yes crowd. Nor do I want us to be the no, everything is permanently and irretrievably broken. 
Instead, I want us to be the nevertheless crowd. Yes, everything is really dark right now. Nevertheless, it is not going to stay this way. Resurrection is coming. God is still our Father. He's still powerful. He's still for us. I don't understand it. Nevertheless. Here, here in this, what, what I want us to be, basically, with respect to Peter, is I don't want us to be, ah, hey, I'm going to stick with you, yes, forever, Jesus, nor do I want us to be, no, I'm never sticking with Jesus. I want us to be the nevertheless crowd, which is, well, I'm going to fail. Nevertheless, I'm always going to try to be the, with Jesus, and nevertheless, he is always going to do what I can't do for me and with me and about me and in my place, because that's who Jesus is and how he works. Even though all may fall away, yet I will not, Jesus said to him, truly I say to you that this very night, before a rooster crows twice, you yourself will deny me three times. So Peter like gets in Jesus' face and says, I don't care if everyone else uh, falls away. I'm never going to do it. They may all stumble, but not me. I will never fall away. And Jesus elevates and amplifies his language. He switches the phrase from fall away to deny, from like something that could happen passively to something that's very active and very awful. And he doesn't even leave it at that. So, so Jesus says, hey, all will fall away. And Peter says, no, never, not me. Maybe all of the rest of them, but not I, never. Jesus says, uh, yeah, tonight, before dawn, before the rooster crows twice, not only once are you going to fall away, but three times you are going to directly and actively deny me. So, what do you think Jesus does to people who repeatedly and immediately and actively deny him? This is one of the places where we begin to build our theology of how God deals with us. This is one of the pieces of theology. In fact, it's revealed every time we're praying about hard things. Every time we pray in a way that God doesn't answer, our answer to this question of how does Jesus deal with the people that disappoint him, this kind of answer comes to light. I think for the vast majority of us, we think that Jesus, you deny him, you especially deny him immediately that night, and you deny him repeatedly, and not just passively, but actively. I think we could write theological treatises on, if you do this, then what's Jesus going to do to you? Right, and, 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 I'm, and I'm leading you. You know, you know what I'm about to say, but you're like, uh, wait, really? And I want to sit on that, wait, really, pastorally, for just a moment. Because yes, really, what Jesus does when you repeatedly and immediately and actively deny him. Is not strike you with lightning. Is not roast you. Is not cast you out of his presence. Is not beat you with whips. Is not coerce you. Instead, let's keep reading. 
But Peter kept saying insistently, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they were all saying the same thing also. So I wonder, those of us who have started believing in Jesus just a little bit, like hopefully a lot, hopefully with our lives, and I know for many of us that is the case, but like whether we're a little or we're a lot, like all of the people that are in Jesus' orbit who have been hearing his teaching, who have been seeing his miracles, seeing his dealings with the, with the sinners and the least of these and, and all these different classes of people, they, they love Jesus, they worship Jesus, they sing to Jesus with gusto. They're like, I'm not leaving him. Peter's the only one with the, with the flapping lips here, but all of them are thinking the exact same thing. And, and I wonder... If, if the warning here is that even for those of us who doubt we have this kind of hubris, perhaps we still have this kind of arrogance. Not me, Lord. Yeah, Peter sucks. Clearly. God, that guy. Mark's warning very pointedly to us as readers is, yeah, you, you too. And, and I love the universalizing aspect of this. All. Really all, not me, not all. Yeah, like all, scare quotes, but not all. He's like, no, 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 like all. The, the one thing Peter thinks he's alone in is in fact the thing that makes him exactly like everyone else. Right, Peter's like, no, 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 not me. I alone, I'm unique, and that I will never fall away. And Mark's like, no, th- even in this, he's not unique. One, he's wrong, and two, everyone else is thinking the exact same thing, at least on some level. They were all saying the same thing also. So I guess, I guess, I guess my, my question is, if Peter had started to understand, oh, okay, for me to understand who Jesus is, who the Christ is, I've begun to understand that he has to die. He, he had gotten that part corrected. But he had misunderstood his place in the world, misunderstood his own strength, misunderstood his own goodness, his own intentions, his own, like, uh, self. And because of that, I think entirely still misunderstood the gospel, salvation, basic world history, like basic facts about what God is doing for the world and in the world in the person and work of Jesus. And Mark's point is, yes, Peter had misunderstood this. Everyone, in fact, misunderstood this. Reader, watch out, because you likely misunderstand this as well. And we return to our question of, wait, so maybe I'm not saved because... I never denied Jesus. Sure, he can overlook that. But when God hasn't answered my prayers, when I've prayed and I've poured my heart out and I've said, God, where are you and this, and the darkness of the world continues swallowing me and it's only and always pain, well, maybe I denied Jesus a little bit, but I only did a little bit. And, and, and I've seen here in this passage that he's still gonna accept and love and invite Peter. But, but maybe 
Maybe I at least have the right theology. Here, here's, let, let me make it plain. My, my bet is that most of us who are raised in and around um, evangelical-ish churches, white churches, American churches, um, think that we're saved by our good theology. We think this is what the Reformation tells us. We think this is what faith is. The problem here is Peter has like really terrible theology. I want us to have good theology. I really do. I wouldn't spend my life preaching to you guys if that wasn't the case. And, and yet I think part of the way that we um, end up exactly where Peter is and are also at the same time completely blind to the fact that we're exactly where Peter is is on this thing. Because we're like, ah, Peter had the wrong theology. The, the reason that he's really in the wrong is he has bad theology. Yeah, he had come to understand uh, something about the nature of Jesus, but he had, he had like faulty anthropology. But, but we, we understand that all fall short of the glory of God, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And, and at least I have that part right. And, and what, we, what we do is we then miss Mark's larger point of even in this moment, Peter had bad theology. It's not that Peter had bad actions and then ended up saved and embraced by Jesus because, well, at least he had fixed his theology. In this moment, he still had perverse, awful, terrible, wrong, Jesus-undermining theology. So, so what happens to you when you have perverse, wicked, wrong, Jesus-undermining theology? You see, in these moments of prayer, I think those of us who are like highly churched, um, we find ourselves hurting and praying and saying, God, where are you? Why haven't you answered this prayer of mine quite yet? And we think, well, there must be hidden sin. Like, we're like rooted out. If this, yes, if, if it's there, but, but most of us start feeling guilt and shame in ways that our good father never intended us to feel guilt and shame. And, and we doubt his love for us, his concern for us, his affection for us, and, and we do this because we're like, we're not good enough. We're not worthy enough. We're not kind enough. We like, he, he just, he's against us. And there's this little slice of us, and yet a very influential and important slice of us here in the church and here in the American white-dominated evangelical-ish church that, that, that escapes from, well, nah, I'm, I'm not so much worried about my guilt and shame and actions. I'm just really concerned about do I have absolute right all the time good theology? Because if I have that, then I have nothing to worry about. And if I have that, then I can roast people on Twitter all day long. And if I have that, then I am never going to disappoint Jesus, deny Jesus, like fall down on Jesus, and he owes me my salvation. The problem is, that's not how any of this works either direction. We're never saved because of our good theology, and in fact, most of our good theology isn't nearly as good as we wish it was. I want our theology to be as good as it possibly can be, and yet also, like, just, just in, maybe, uh, infinity is a really weird uh, thing. You, you guys, um, some of y'all know this, but I spent a couple years as a math PhD student. 
And like, um, you start to talk about the different kinds of infinity, like the different flavors of infinity, and you start to like understand like what the difference in countable and uncountable is, what the difference in like, like just different like orders of kinds of infinity. Um, and so uh, while saying, yeah, infinity is a complex topic and it's easy for us to fudge and hand wave a little bit, I, I still think this imagery helps me a lot. Um, if you have um, an infinite stack of, I don't know, crayons. Right? It's just infinitely high pile of crayons. You start picking off a crayon. I take a red one, and a green one, and a blue one. If I take three crayons from an infinite pile, there's still an infinite number of crayons. If I take four crayons from an infinite pile, there's still an infinite pile of crayons. Sometimes I think about our knowledge of God like this infinite pile of crayons. If there are things to know about God and understand about God, we pick them off. I know this, and I know this, and I know this. But, but if there's infinitely much for us to know about God, then regardless of how many facts we pick off, how many things we grab and grasp onto and begin to understand about God, there will always be infinitely more that we don't understand about God than we do understand about God. I'm not saying this because I don't believe, because I don't like the Bible, because I don't like Jesus. I wouldn't be preaching up here if that weren't the case. And yet, this seems to be just basic fundamental undeniable difference in finitude and infinitude of being finite humans trying to understand an actual infinite being like our God. So if it's the case that I'm always going to have more that I don't understand than I do understand, then God, I hope, I am not saved by my right theology, by my precise theology, by my good theology, by my well-meaning theology. I need something not just more than that, but categorically different than that. And that's exactly what Jesus always and only offers us. Okay, so... Let's, let's push pause here because I'm a little in the weeds on theology. If we're praying, we're asking, God, I need you to help me with this thing. I've been longing for it. It is clearly a good thing. This is a life and death thing. God, you hate death. You hate our suffering. You hate our pain. God, won't you help us in this thing, right? Well, whatever this thing is. And then unspeakable, unthinkable happens. And we start to ask, God, why didn't you answer my prayer? What in the world, oh God? I think some of us think, well, um, it was because we denied God too many times. Or I think some of us think, well, it was because we just had um, slightly off theology, and if we had better theology, then maybe we could have pleased God just enough. Or like we, we have all of these explanations for, well, God didn't hear our prayer because X or Y or Z, right? So, so the, these are kind of the two things that I pointed out so far. One is we think I need to have done better or been better, kind of the guilt and shame. Or the, th the second one, or I guess third, eh, my counting is off. I was a math major. Um, uh, um, the, the second one is, no, I just, I needed to think better. I needed to understand better. Um, let, let, let me, let me um, tell you a couple of other ways. When, when things don't go the way that we think they should in our prayer lives, most of us just say, well, God must not like me much, or God must not actually be as powerful as I hoped he was. And we give up one of these two things. 
Um, we're going to address that. Our text is going to address that. But, but I just want to kind of say, when, when things don't go our way, our basic reaction is to say, well, I haven't done enough, I haven't been enough, or I haven't thought clearly enough, or there's something faulty and wrong with God. I think most of us end up in one of these four basic places. But they came to a place named Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here until I have prayed. Verse 33, and he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be very distressed and troubled. You know, see what just happened? Jesus says, hey, you're going to not just fall away, but you're going to deny me three times actively and immediately, repetitively, insistently, immediately, unrepentantly, you are going to deny me. And what does Jesus do? Come along. I need to pray. It's the most important night of my life, and I need friends. Jesus doesn't say, well, fine, away with you then. Jesus doesn't say, well, hey, let me punch you in the face. Let's wrestle this out. Jesus doesn't like do any of these things. He instead gently and needily says, will you come with me? Will you come pray with me? Will you come spend time with me? I'm not going to be able to sleep tonight, and I need you. Jesus humanly and gently and lovingly continues inviting in the people around him. This is who God is. Right? When we look at Jesus, we see the most brilliant, glorious, clearest, best picture of God that we could possibly have. When he knows that Peter is about to do this, how does God react to that? I.e., how does Jesus react to that? In frustration and anger and condemnation? And well, never mind, I was going to die for you guys, but, but no longer. Here comes the wrath. No, Jesus continues steadfastly with forbearance and patience and foreknowledge, knowing ahead of time exactly what's going to happen. He continues giving good things, knowing that none of it is going to be returned. And yeah, it's Peter, but it's also James and John, whom Jesus had also just said, hey, all of you guys are about to fail me. Would y'all come with me? Then he began to be very distressed and troubled. He has this shuddering horror that's physically expressed in the face of this terrifying event. One of the things that happens in our prayer lives is I think God sees like our darkest moments our rawest moments, our neediest moments. Maybe not in our like average everyday prayer, but the times where we're just like driven and desperate to pray. God, I'm ugly crying. I'm like, I'm not okay. I'm in just, I'm angry. I'm mad. I'm cold. Like, like ex- however you happen to express it, God sees our darkest moments. And then when those things don't go right, we're like, well, Maybe I shouldn't have been so real or raw with God. Maybe he's mad at me now because I didn't address him exactly right. 
So, so we're worried after the fact about God has seen this darkest moment of my life and is that okay? And I love this passage because what Jesus has literally just invited his three friends, and by the way, also all of us, because he captured it and recorded it exactly for us. We got word for word. We have like detailed, descriptive expression of what's happening. We're worried about, can I really safely invite Jesus and God into the darkest moment of my life? And the God of the universe looks at you and says, hey, you wanna, you wanna see? You wanna come with me? You wanna be invited into the darkest moment of my life? I need you. And this is wild, but this is who God is. The God who can't need anything, who created all things. This Jesus who upholds the universe by the word of his power. The one in whom all things hold together. The one from whom and for whom and through whom are all things. This Jesus who can not by definition have any need looks at you and me and his three and says, I need you. Will you enter into my darkest moment together with me? Don't leave me. And man, if I don't love this. Man, if it doesn't give me a great sense of confidence and boldness in my darkest moments, can I trust God in my darkest moments? And he's like, here's my darkest moment. Will you enter into it together with me? And I'm like, okay, now I know who you are and how you roll. Enter into my darkest moment together with me. Oh, please, my God. And Jesus said to them, verse 34, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. He says, I am experiencing something and it is as if I am dying. You guys stay here and keep watch, which is keep awake, keep praying together with me. I'm gonna go right over here and pray. Y'all stay right here and pray. I need the presence of my father right now and I need the support of my friends. We just sang together. I just cracked open my spiritual life for you. I invited you into this. I need you to see my humanity. Encourage me in my humanity. Support me in my humanity. Will you? you be here with me. And he went a little beyond them and he fell to the ground. There's a bunch of different biblical postures for prayer. There's kneeling, there's standing with your hands to the sky, there's falling on your face, there's dancing. I, like really, I want us to be a congregation that does all of these postures because at different moments, each of these postures helps us feel and express a slightly different thing. And in this moment, Jesus falls on the ground, weighed down by grief and begins to ask if it's possible that this hour might pass him by. And he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. So let's hang out here for just a second because there's, there's, there's a bunch here. Um, you see what Jesus has just done is he has just presented a prayer request that's not going to be answered in the way that he hoped it would. I guess technically Jesus gets what he asks for because at the end, like he kind of sum summarizes it as not what I will, but you will, and that is what actually happens. 
But, but Jesus also directly, and we're going to see he does this three times. But even in the three times, he does it twice each time. He says, let this hour pass, let this cup pass. This cup, in, in Old Testament terms, is this cup of divine judgment and wrath that's being poured out against the enemies of God. And Jesus says, I'm about to drink this cup. Would you take it from me? God, I'm, yes, I'm about to die, but I'm about to experience like divine judgment. Would you take it from me, oh God? Let the hour pass, let the cup pass. God, I don't want this. So in those moments when we're like, wait, I didn't get what I prayed for, I find great encouragement that neither did Jesus. And yet for all of our worries of I haven't done enough, I haven't been enough, I haven't thought rightly enough, God doesn't love me, or he's not really powerful. We see refutations to all of those in his prayer, literally here in verse 36. So this prayer of Jesus is really interesting to break it apart and compare it to the Lord's prayer. It starts off with Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Here it's Father, you can do all things. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Let everyone know how great, how powerful, and how important you are. Father, you can do all things. And so there's some parallels here, Lord's Prayer and this prayer. Jesus prays for the will of God. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What you will, O God, do it. But instead of asking, give us this day our daily bread, he says, take this cup from me. Which might be a way of rephrasing, God, don't, don't lead me into temptation, but deliver me from the evil one. The, 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 you know, we're, we're guessing a little bit, but, but there's, there's really interesting parallels. But beyond just comparing this to the Lord's Prayer, really what I want to do is I want to I point out that at the very beginning when he says, Abba, Father, what Jesus is resting in, what he has not given up his conviction in, is God still loves me. Jesus knows what's about to happen. Jesus is praying that it won't happen. And he knows that it's about to happen in spite of the fact that he also knows that God loves him. In other words, he has not changed his mind and started worrying about it and started convincing himself of the fact, well, God must not really love me. He must love all those other people, but he doesn't love me. He, he must have affection for all those other people, but like he's not my father anymore. He's not my Abba anymore. I can't come to him anymore. Like I'm, I'm not on his side anymore. No, in this moment, Jesus does what exact, exactly what every single one of us needs to continue to do. Abba, Father. God, you love me. God, you love me. God, you love me. God, because of that, I also love you. God, I've experienced your love and encountered your love and been filled with your love and it has started this reaction within me that I've begun to love you as well. Abba, Father, you are so good and so powerful. I know you can do all things. I know you can do this. So instead of getting cynical, instead of saying, well, you know, maybe prayer just doesn't do anything. Maybe maybe there is actually no God. Maybe um, all these things that we've understood about prayer and about asking for God's help and praying in the Psalms, and there's all sorts of allusions to the Psalms here that we've kind of glossed over, but, but maybe all of it was just wrong. Maybe now in our modern scientific age, maybe we know better, and we like kind of hide ourselves in cynicism and doubt. And instead of all this, Jesus continues saying, God, I know that you love me, and God, I know that you can do this. Nevertheless, 
I don't want this. Would you take this cup from me? I do not want this judgment, this pain, this suffering, this wrath, this death. Oh God. Yet not what I will, but what you will. We're going to kind of run through a few more verses real fast here. Um, but let me, let me almost finish here. If you take any one answer from this message about what do we do when our prayers haven't worked? Why haven't our prayers worked? Let it be this. Your prayers don't not work because you're not beloved. Your prayers don't not work because God's not powerful enough. Sometimes it just is what it is. Sometimes that's wrapped up in God's will. Sometimes that's wrapped up in the brokenness of the world. Sometimes that's wrapped up in just the way the world works. I can't pray that God doesn't allow my iPad to fall and then drop it. There are all kinds of things that we don't understand And yet for our lack of understanding, we cannot give up on the fact that God loves us, that God is really powerful, and we can therefore safely entrust ourselves, our lives, our hearts, our minds, our emotions, our inner beings, and our futures to his care. So what Jesus does for us here in this moment is he surrenders in a way that you and I will never be able to fully surrender without his gift, without his help, without his empowerment, but Jesus surrenders in a way that ought ought at the very least to inspire us and challenge us to say, okay, Lord, I I need to believe that you love me. I've I've run off before when my prayers weren't answered, and God, I, I, I now know that I should have stayed in your presence and continued insisting on your love. God, I've run off before and given up on your power, but I now know that I should have stayed in your presence and insisted on your good and your power. God, I haven't understood things and I've wanted things and instead of asking these things, I've just shut my mouth and ran off from you. But God, I now know that I should have stayed in your presence, insisted on your love, insisted on your power and ended with the nevertheless. God, I do trust you. I want your will because I know you love me and I know that you can do it. God, I trust you. I need you and I submit to you. I surrender to you. You see, I think what happened to Jesus in this moment is he's heard because of his reverence is what Hebrews tells us but, but um, he cries out with loud cries and tears in a way that is very human and helps us to identify with him. He, he's very human and therefore can deal gently and patiently with all of us who encounter any, any struggle, any suffering, any anything. But what what happens, I think, to Jesus is probably what Paul promises in Philippians when, when, when Paul says, hey, if we continue leaning into the Lord in these kinds of moments, God can envelop us in peace, in divine comfort. In the presence of the God who is comfort itself, the God of all comfort. 
Remember, Paul prays three times, God, take this thorn, take this thorn, take this thorn, and then a voice speaks to him and says, my grace is sufficient, my power is made perfect in weakness. I think Jesus likely experiences something exactly like that in this moment. Help me, help me, help me, take this, take this, take this, nope, my grace is sufficient for you. And I think that same sort of filling, that same sort of courage, that same sort of peace, that same sort of divine presence might be poured out on us in our prayer lives if we will continue insisting, but God, you love me, and God, you can do this, and God, I want this to be fixed. Where are you, oh God? If we will also continue to that last part, God, I surrender to you. This is terrifying, but God, I give this to you, not what I will, but what you will. You are welcome in God's presence just like Jesus was. Your prayers don't work, aren't an indication that you're loathed any more than they were an indication that Jesus was loathed. God remains safe for your surrender even when we don't fully understand. Verse 37, Jesus came and found them sleeping and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you might not come into temptation. Your spirit is willing but your flesh is weak. So there's a willingness and a weakness in Peter that I think is the fact of life for absolutely all of us. We want this, we want to do this, but we find ourselves too weak for this. You know what happens when we find ourselves too weak for something? We need direct, gifted power from Jesus that Jesus can and does actually provide. God, I'm too weak for this. I'm willing, but I'm too weak. What you've warned me here is I'm too weak. And what he wants us to understand is, yes, you're too weak. I know you're too weak. I know you have too much pain and too much doubt and too much worry and too little conviction that you were beloved by God. But if you cry out in your weakness, God can gift us in that weakness and can help us in these moments the same way that Peter needed help. Again, Jesus went away and prayed, saying these same words, let the hour pass, take the cup from me, nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Again, Jesus came and found his friends sleeping because their eyes were so heavy. They didn't know what to answer him. Again, he came a third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Look, it's enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let's be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Let's end on this. For all of our doubt, for all of our worry, for all of our pain, for all of our rejection and denial of God, you know what the God of the universe says to you in this moment? The, the God whom like all things are owed to. You know, there are these prophecies about Jesus that all things are going to be handed over to him. Like all glory and all dominion and every throne and everything in the cosmos is going to be handed over to him. So what does that kind of God do when he sees you doubting, hurting, running, closing yourself off from him? He says, well, I am the kind of God that everything is supposed to be handed over to, but instead I will have myself handed over on your behalf. And he completely inverts it and reverses it and puts himself in your place out of continuing, steadfast, unshakable, relentless love for you. Despite your failures in prayer, despite your giving up in prayer, despite your doubt of his great love for you, his love 
will not quit on you. It will not fail for you. It is not too small for you. Let's pray. God, I need you in this moment. We need you in this moment. Would you teach us to pray and never stop? God, for those of us who have stopped praying because of so much pain when we weren't heard or weren't answered the way we expected to be, God, would you reassure us and strengthen us of your goodness, of your compassion, of your availability and of your power, even for us. Jesus, we need the gift of your strength, of your hope, and of your love in this moment. Would you help us? Would you be here as we sing to you?